Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. We're so grateful that you found us. The JCBC Podcast is a collection of sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. Right now, we're in a new series. It's called How to Be Human. We hope if you're in town or close by, you'll stop in and join us 11 o'clock Sunday mornings. Until then, subscribe and follow along. I want to encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, and we will be in chapter 2 of Ephesians in just a moment. But before we get there, I need you to know that when the boys were little, I had morning duties. That means Laura went to work early in the mornings, so I got to get the boys ready in the mornings. And we had breakfast, and we made lunches, and it was great. And we had a ritual that we would practice every day when I would drop them off at school. We'd drive up to their elementary school. It started then, and it continued all the way until they started riding a bus in middle school. I'd drive up, and I'd say, okay, boys, get your stuff. Hope you have a great day. I'll be praying for you. And then I say, are you a king? Yeah. And they both would say, yes. And then I would say, which one? And Jackson would say, Jackson. And Nathan would say, Nathan. And then we would fist bump and they would get out of the car and they would go on about their day. We did that on purpose. and, And I did that as a kind of identity rehearsal with them because they were about to enter into an environment that would draw out that which would cause them to forget who they are. Sometimes we need to remember who we are and that remembering takes rehearsal. I wanted them to know as they go into their world that day that they belong to something bigger than them. Are you a king? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm a part of a story bigger than just me, but which one? Because I have a unique part in that bigger story. Of course, one day I took them to school and got them ready. It was great. We had breakfast. I packed their lunches. They got their backpacks, their jackets on. They went on into the car. We went to school and we went through the rhythm and the ritual. I said, all right, boys, hope you have a good day. Going to be praying for you. Are you a king? Nathan said, uh, yes. I said, which one? He said, Nathan, fist bump. He gets out of the car. Are you a king, Jackson? Jackson said, yes. Which one? Jackson. We fist bump. And then he gasps as he grabs the door handle. He goes, ah. I said, what? And he's barefooted. No socks, no shoes. He had the backpack on, his jacket, his project in hand, and his lunch in hand, but completely. I said, yep, you're a king. (laughs) And yeah, sometimes you have to rehearse who you are, lest you forget. And this is what this whole sermon series is all about to remind us of who it is that God intended us to be as his beautifully and creative and wonderfully made humans, made in his own image, crafted in his own likeness. Because we live in a world in which we are inclined to forget. We live in a world that can be a dehumanizing world, bringing out the very worst in us. 
And at times we can attempt to mar that image in which we've been made. We can absolutely fail at living up to and into our highest identity as those being created in the image of God, in the likeness of the Father. And we can, in that kind of world, forget why God even even started this whole enterprise to begin with. Sometimes it's important to remember because in a world like that, that is dehumanizing, we can isolate one another. We can divide from one another. We can not only not love, but we can hate one another. And we can not only not love and hate one another, we can do worse, neglect one another. So for a little while, I want us to think about what it means. I want us to rehearse what it means to be human because Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it to the fullest. And I wonder if there is someone here today or who is listening, who has lived a kind of season in which you have been dehumanized and and for whatever reason you have Maybe you felt like you've been on the outside looking in, isolated, in despair, frustrated, alone. Maybe, maybe this passage that we have to read today is the perfect passage for you. We're going to read through this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to stop along the way to kind of unpack some truths that emerge from its pages. So I want you to start with me in chapter 2. Verse 11, so then remember, hmm. it's a powerful word, right, to remember, especially when you live in a world that has the capacity to dismember you, to put you in places and in postures that make you feel isolated and alone and separated from this alleged fullness of life that God promises, right? So it's important from time to time in a dismembering world to remember. So then remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, you people, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Stop there for just a moment, can we? I think it's important from time to time when we approach the Scripture to remember, to remember that this whole story that, that unfolds in sacred scripture is really pretty much a story of one family. It starts out with the family of Abram. And this one family, well, becomes a nation. And this nation is intended to be what scripture refers to as a light to all the nations. God chose somewhere to begin, and God begins with this particular family to show the rest of the world what it might look like to live in the fullness of God. So we follow this story of this family that becomes a nation and the saga of their ups and downs, their successes and failures. We watch them rise and we watch them fall and we watch them rise again. And we watch this nation 
become enslaved to another nation, to Egypt. But this God is so determined to bring about life that really is life. He's so determined to bring the promised life of fullness and prosperity and grace and love and peace to this family as an example to what's available to all the nations of the world that he chooses to activate a liberation. He he comes to their rescue, frees them from slavery, and goes with them through the wilderness journey toward their promise. And while they're in the wilderness... They begin to put some, uh, some structure over their life together. And this structure, later we'll call it religion, but this structure is intended to create a pathway for them to live fully and freely up to and into their identity as a unique kind of people. So we read in great, glorious books of the Bible like Leviticus, that these are my people, and as my people, you are to live differently in this world than in the chaotic expressions of life all around you. You are to live a life of order. So do these things, but don't do these. Wear these garments, but don't wear these garments. Eat these foods, but avoid this diet. And you and I, in our 21st century arrogance, will sometimes look back over expressions of primitive religions like that and say, how restrictive. My goodness, there's nothing free about that at all. But the truth is, religion at its best is intended to provide the opposite of what it seems. Religion is intended to create a pathway to a life of fullness in God. So within this life of order and structure and discipline, well... These rituals and rhythms provide an opportunity to live whole and holy lives. The trouble is, sometimes good religion can go bad. And I'm not just talking about our forebearers in the faith. I'm talking about today. Good religion can go bad. And everybody in the the sound of my voice, you can probably name somebody in your family or in your friend group who maybe left the faith because they encountered good religion that had gone bad. Maybe they were burned by some kind of scandal or corruption or maybe some kind of abuse like sexual abuse or spiritual abuse And it left a wound so deep in them that they walked away from it completely. See, sometimes good religion can go bad. And we can often become more of an obstacle to the life of fullness in God than a pathway. We are meant to be a pathway that opens up for all the nations of the world access to a life they never thought they could have in God. And yet sometimes we can become so fixated on the structures and the rhythms and the rituals and the institutional um, expressions of faith that we create more of a, a roadblock than a roadway. Especially when we when we fixate upon who is inside my little circle of faith and who is outside, when we spend more energy 
defining and defending the walls of our faith from those outsiders out there than we do seeking the outsiders, well then, there's something wrong in the religion. This is the very thing that frustrated Jesus more than anything else. The defenders of the faith, the religious leaders of his day, were more fixated upon holding up the structures and institutional expressions of their faith rather than seeking those who may be outside looking in. When religion becomes more about insiders versus outsiders, well, we've lost our way. Because if, if we don't wake up daily to this truth that we are all outsiders, we'll be prone to imagine that maybe we've always been out insiders. If, if we're not waking up, did I reverse that? If we don't wake up to the fact that we've all been outsiders, we'll think that we've been insiders the whole time. And were it not for the mercies of God, we'd still be outsiders looking in. So that's why Paul in this text says Christ came to do something different, better than religion and better than the us and themness of any kind of religious expression. This is what Jesus came to do in verse number 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us, he has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself, watch this phrase, one new humanity in the place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. I don't know if there could be any more beautiful expression to the task of Jesus, to the mission of Christ than what we just read. He came to abolish the dividing wall between the two groups. Well, what two groups? Well, on the surface, clearly it means the Jews and the Gentiles. I mean, even that language began that verse a moment ago, those of you who are circumcised and those of you who are uncircumcised. Isn't it interesting, by the way, Paul goes on to say, those of you who are uncircumcised, uh, you're called that by the people who are circumcised. Isn't it interesting how the outsiders are always called outsiders by those who think that they are on the inside? Yeah? And so he says, I've come, Christ came to, or to abolish the dividing wall between any Jew and Gentile, or you can change up the words, insider, outsider, clean, unclean. I've come to remove the divisions, the false divisions between the holy and the unholy, as if there are some of us actually more holy than others. But you could go on any dyad of two groups that seem to be on opposite ends of God's preference. He came to abolish the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, clean, unclean, holy, profane, old, young, educated, uneducated, wealthy, poor, liberal, conservative, black, white, and every shade of brown in between. To, div to divide at all 
runs counter to the consciousness of Christ himself. I came to remove the false divisions that you think I see when I see you. I came to create that wonderful phrase, a new humanity. Jesus did not come to create a new religion. Jesus came for something better, bigger, more eternal than any religion or denomination or expression or tradition. He came to create nothing more than, less than, or other than a new humanity. To start all over because something had gone wrong with the first humanity. That beautiful expression of what the poets tell us happened in Genesis 1 and 2. God, in that Edenic glory of our beginnings, created humankind in God's own image, and it was great. Oh, men and women were made of the same stuff, and they were breathing the same air that God had given both of them, and they walked together with God in the cool of the day, and it was splendid. And then chapter 3 Sin enters into our story, and it fragments the first humanity. And you read of now the man will be um, divided from the woman, and the woman will have separation from the serpent, and her heel will be on on the head of the serpent, and there will be divisions, gradations of division between us, splintered, fragmented in pieces. In 1998, uh, I told some of you this story. There was an auction in Denver, Colorado. It it was to benefit the hospice of greater Denver. And because it was, several celebrities were there, and several celebrities had donated certain items to be auctioned off in this auction. Well, one woman was there, and she was really happy because she had won her bid at this particular item. Her name was Margaret Coors. Her last name is Coors. In Colorado, if you don't make the connection, I ask you to see Monty afterwards. He'll answer all the questions that you may have. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> and she was happy because going once, going twice, so bang. And for $7,000, she bought this gorgeous porcelain mask that had been hand-painted by John Denver, the singer, just a few weeks before his fatal plane crash. She was ecstatic. She goes up to the rostrum and gathers her, her mask now, her, her treasure that she has now purchased, and fumbles it, drops it to the ground, and it shatters into a thousand pieces. Yeah. But, you know, instead of getting upset about it, instead of demanding her money back, instead of demanding some compensation, she scoops it up together, gathers all the broken pieces. She goes home and takes an album of John Denver and a picture and arranges the broken pieces in this gorgeous display. You know, there is a kind of beauty that can only come after brokenness. Yeah. There's a kind of beauty that can only come after brokenness. Our first expression of humanity is broken. And he has come to establish a new humanity. In fact, there's a gorgeous line in the first chapter of this same book. Just turn back a page maybe to Ephesians chapter 1 beginning at the tail end of verse 
8. With all wisdom and insight, he, that's God, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. Well, what is that? According to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Well, to do what? To gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, to gather up together, to bend down and scoop together the broken shards of Eden and our first humanity, to gather them together. In fact, there's a word in the Greek text there that is just gorgeous to me. It's um, anakephaleathesai. Isn't that beautiful? Anakephaleathesai. I mean, you... You play Anakephaleathesai in Scrabble and you win. Yeah? Game over. Anakephaleathesai means to gather up, to sum up, to bring together, to scoop it all in unity and bring it back together. It's made up of two words, ana, which means up or upward or back again, and kephale, which means head. So literally, it means to bring together under one head to bring what together? The word is pas in Greek. It means all things. It means everything. Every single bit of thing together. In Christ, do you realize this new humanity that Christ has come to establish is way more than a religion. He is establishing a unity under him as head and Lord in such a way that every broken thing can be scooped up under him, anakephaleathesai. That means that vacation that you took that one year and you put all your eggs in that basket, we really need this rest. It's going to be great. And it was until about the third or fourth day and you get a phone call with the doctor's office that tells you what the diagnosis is and then the, well, the trajectory changes for the rest of your life. Anakephaleathesai. God is here through Christ to scoop all of that brokenness. It's that friend group that used to be so tight until one of the couples got a divorce and then it was forced upon you. You had to choose sides and now nothing's ever been the same. It's fragmented like a porcelain mask on the floor and a kephaleathesai. God, through Christ, is scooping all of that pain up. Even that wound that you sustained when you were a child and you thought you were over it and you've been to counseling and you've seen therapy, but every once in a while someone will say something or they'll poke the heart in just the right way, and it's as if it happened yesterday in a kephaleathesai. God is gathering all of the broken parts of our first humanity to create in us a new humanity. This is why the writer of Colossians put it this way in verse 19 and 20, for in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, God was pleased to, watch this, to reconcile to himself all things. Every broken pattern of sin and injustice, every broken pattern of unfairness and inequity, every ism that keeps us separated from one another, racism, sexism, ageism, tribalism, every ism that makes us think as if we have to live 
as a group of insiders versus a group of outsiders and a kephalathasai. He is bringing all things back together again. It's almost like in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet was told by God, go down to this valley And in this valley, it's an old battleground where the Babylonians had run over the people and now all that's left is the remnant bones, broken pieces of equipment and weaponry and everywhere the prophet looks, it's nothing but dry bones. And he's standing there knee deep in a valley of death and loss and grief and everything that has been separated and torn apart. And God says to the prophet, Can these bones live again? And I imagine he reaches down and grabs a dry femur and holds in one hand a bone, another, a skeleton, a skull, and and says, Lord, only you know. And then God begins to describe to the old prophet, I desire to put bone back to bone to put marrow in the bones and sinew on the bones and, and, and flesh upon the bones and skin upon the flesh. And I desire once again to breathe into the nostrils of these the breath of life. Yes, and he, the prophet, stands there listening to a God who says, I've done it before and I can do it again. So when Jesus comes to establish not a new religion, but a new humanity, it's as if God is saying in this person, Jesus, the Christ of God is establishing a whole new Eden, a whole new creation for all who are in Christ. There is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, something brand new has come. Do you realize this is what religion is intended to be anyway? In fact, the definition of religion is from the Latin word ligio, which means where we get the word ligament. So to religio is to re-ligament things that are broken and separated and torn apart. Good religion does that. Good religion is the kind of religion that spends its energy, its focus, its money on making sure that they who have been separated and broken and torn apart are re-ligamented in the love of Jesus. If your religion does not major on re-ligamenting those who have been torn apart and separated and lost and in despair, then it's time to get a new religion. Right? This is why Christ Came And Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 2 with verse number 17. So he came and proclaimed peace to you and who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, old prophets like Ezekiel and with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure, the structure of what? The structure of the universe itself and the structure of the universe. The whole structure itself 
is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Beloved, do you recognize the whole point of Christ is to pull back together the broken parts of us so that in us, God has a dwelling place on earth. That means that when you and I gather here every time we gather, we have the capacity, if we have the eyes to see it, to look into our woundedness, to look into our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses, to show when it's appropriate a scar that I picked up during this story and a, a wound that I earned during that season in my life. When we gather together in this community of vulnerability, then we're able to see in one another how we each have been re-ligamented by God. And in re-ligamenting this community of the re-ligamented, we become in our wider community the place where people understand that's where you go when you know you're imperfect and you're unfinished because those folks know somebody who can do something about that. Yeah, yeah. And so when we do that, we see in each other something more than just each other. It's what Frederick Buechner said, when the Christ in me recognizes the Christ in you, the place between us is holy ground. We become together in our shared life this spiritual temple in which God himself dwells. But we cannot see that until we allow Christ to re-ligament each of us. We can be a community of the re-ligamented and we can be the place where it's safe to come and heal and grow and be a part of a new humanity, but it doesn't start until each one of us is willing to stand before him and say, I can't put my life back together. I, I'm a valley of dry bones. I, I, I am, a, I am a, a volume of stories of my old humanity with plenty of woundedness to show. But if you can do something with my brokenness, then here I am.